I want to thank all the labor unions here in Dane County that help keep SlyOffice.com up and going so you keep up to date. Whether it be the Madison Firefighters, Local 311, or the Madison Teamsters, Local 695, or our friends at Madison Teachers Incorporated. These are some of the most active local unions who organize, 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 and constantly stand up for workers. Thank you from SlyOffice.com. When you're looking for a new computer or need help with one you already own, call 231-8000 and Madison Computer Works will get things up and running for you. Madison Computer Works, computers that work for you. Welcome to another podcast at SlyOffice.com, brought to you by the operating engineers, Local 139. Also, our friends at the Madison Teamsters, Local 695, Madison Firefighters, Local 311, and Madison Teachers Incorporated. Associate Editor of the Capital Times, John Nichols, joins us now. John, there was a statewide election in Wisconsin. Let me play just a clip here from WISN television in Milwaukee. Ballots are being counted in Wisconsin's spring election. More than 200 races across communities in southeastern Wisconsin. Results are scrolling at the bottom of your screen. The only statewide contest tonight is for Wisconsin's school superintendent. Here's where the race stands right now. You can see with 80% of precincts reporting, Dr. Jill Underly is leading Dr. Deborah Kerr 57 to 43%. With the numbers the way they are, the Associated Press has called this race in favor of Dr. Jill Underly. All right. Uh, conservative talk hosts are now ex- making excuses that this loss was something feels like it's falling in back of you there, John. I think I am OK. It's just the, it's the conservative lies crumbling. <laughs> OK, uh, so it turns out the uh, conservatives are now saying, well, Kerr wasn't really a good candidate because she was really a Democrat. That is their excuse. That logic would have made Kerr the best possible candidate because she took all of their conservative stands but identified as a Democrat. That should have put all the pieces together, right? You've got a uh, candidate who presumably could appeal across some party lines, maybe even some ideological lines, but was running on their core concepts, right, which is vouchers, um, you know, attacking teachers get all the kids back get all yeah reopen right right yeah maybe those maybe those ideas aren't that popular exactly so you realize here's the situation if you equalize the partisan divide and you theoretically equalize at least some of the ideological divides then you've just got a pure test of the issue and here's what the conservatives and the republicans said they said well you can't elect Jill Underly as superintendent of public instruction because she's backed by the teachers union very, very strongly. You can't elect her because she doesn't like voucher programs. You can't elect her because she's deeply committed to economic and social and racial justice and wants this to be a part of uh, what we teach and how we teach along with every other subject. And you can't elect her because uh, she is you know, very, very committed to the interests of, of teachers and of, as we noted before, their unions, etc. So they had all this on the table. They put their whole agenda on the table, everything they run on, everything they push out. Uh, and with all the other, apparently, supposed divisions taken off, should have been an easy win for Kerr. Instead, you ended up with a landslide victory for the candidate who went out there and stood unquestionably 
with teachers in their unions and didn't just do so after the primary, was actually the person identified before the primary as the kind of most pro-teacher, most pro-union candidate. Seems like, seems like our conservative friends may have a little more to explain there. Well, uh, you look at Waukesha County where Kerr got 58% of the vote. That used to be a 70% Democratic county. It That's exactly no, right. no longer is. It's performing about 12, 13 points behind. And Dane County, whew. Mm-hmm. You know, Russ, Fein, R- yeah. Russ Feingold got elected, beat Bob Cashton by six or seven points back in 1992, and he was happy to have 66% of the vote in Dane County. And, of course, oh, yeah. those numbers went up even in the years that he lost. But, good Lord, Dane County is now an 80% Democratic Party uh, county. county. It's an 80% progressive county in this case. Obviously, this race not having a Democratic name. You know, you didn't have a ballot line per se. But obviously the candidates supported strongly by the Democrats. And I think that's something you have to put into the mix, Fly. Uh, as we look at this superintendent's race, this is two things to understand. First, this is the second cycle, although not, you know, or maybe third if you count the spring election last year, uh, where Ben Wickler's been in charge of the Democratic Party. And one of the things that's notable here is that the Democratic Party didn't just, you know, kind of wink and nod toward Jill Underly. It went all in. I mean, they were doing mailings. They were doing, you know, every kind of communications they could. This was clearly an effort to identify Underly with the Democratic Party. Well, And, and you know, it didn't hurt her. Well, it, uh, and on Underly's part, she did not try to hide the fact that unions were supporting her, sidestep it. I, I talked to union people, uh, not just in teachers' unions, but... In the meetings, she was, she was all on board. She is from a union family, and she did not, mm-hmm. she did not hide the fact that she was supported by unions. You know, some candidates right. tried to do a two-step. Exactly. So that's that's one. Let's put that all in in one box, if we will. And then let's also put this election in, in perspective. Let's understand, um, you know, kind of how this thing fits into the the recent cycle in Wisconsin in 2016. Donald Trump narrowly won the state of Wisconsin. He has a smidgen of votes, but he had it. He had a narrow advantage. Ron Johnson, he he got you know reelected to the Senate, like it or not. Um, and then what has happened since then? Well, uh, we have seen two highly contested state Supreme Court races. Three actually, actually, actually three. Yeah. And then yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And the progressive candidates have won two out of three. Well, that's what I was saying. Two went to the progressive candidates. We did have one that, that went to a, a conservative very, very narrowly, right, by about 6,000 votes. And then once we put the Supreme Court races beside, what have we seen in our statewide races? U.S. Senate race with Tammy Baldwin goes to the Democrat. Governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, secretary of state. Treasurer. Treasurer. Yeah. Goes to the Democrats. The presidency in 2020. Early, I'll admit, goes to the Democrats. And now, in the first statewide election since Joe Biden was sworn in as president of the United States of America, first statewide election in the country, right? Um, you get a 57, 58% victory for the candidate backed by the Democrats in the swing state of Wisconsin. Uh, that's A, a really significant pattern, and B, 
a highly significant pattern, not just for Wisconsin, but nationally, because if there was, you know, any indication of a big kind of blowback against Biden, right, that people really are looking for a way to vote against anybody associated with Joe Biden, anybody associated with the Democrats, you didn't get that at all. Shill Underly lost uh, Sheboygan County by 70 votes, and Sheboygan elected a young Democrat in his mm-hmm. 20s as mayor. Now, Manitowoc and Sheboygan both have young mayors. Uh, that, that's yep. a pretty remarkable thing. Well, it is, and there's also a pattern going on up in those counties that looks to be um, sort of a, a, a kind of climbing back from their their engagement with the Republicans and their interest, especially even in Trump. Although Trump, you know, remember, he ran pretty well in some of those uh, eastern shore or eastern yeah. section of Wisconsin. Well, then this is what I wanted to ask you. So, you know, there was a time where when there were low turnout elections, it it definitely favored Republicans. Yeah. It seems like with the Democrats and the sorting that's going on, it's Democrats who are doing better in some low turnout mm-hmm. elections. And who are energized. And are energized. And are, yeah, right. Exactly. I don't think there's any question. And one of the things that, that I think is, becomes a factor in our politics now, and this is a significant one, is that Donald Trump's lingering presence defines the Republican Party and conservatism. If Trump had stood down, if he was doing what a former president usually does, which is, you know, kind of go back to the ranch and learn to paint, um, then... I think the Republicans could be defining themselves as just simply a pure opposition to Biden. And they would, you know, I don't think they'd find as much as you as they might think they would, but they might find their things to grumble about and, you know, have their ways to build out their message. As long as Trump is there, they can't build their message out. It's they are they are simply Trump. And uh, frankly, Democrats, as we well know, progressives are very highly motivated to go out and vote against Trump and Trumpism and people associated with it. So you end up in a situation where you do see this high energy for Democrats in an area, in a time when historically you might have seen a more high energy for Republicans. And where I see that most clearly is in the special election for the state Senate uh, up in the district kind of northeast of Madison. And that's where John Jagler was running against uh, Winker. And uh, what, what did you see there? The Democrats got 44% of the vote in Scott Fitzgerald's former state senate. Yeah, that is a very ge- that is a very gerrymandered, you know, Republican district. It's probably the most gerrymandered. They, they, right? you know, well, and they really gerrymandered that one because Scott Fitzgerald did not want Andy Jorgensen as an opponent. Exactly. So they literally drew him right out of, right out of the district. Andy, they drew Andy out of that race. <laughs> But they also drew, you know, if you go in the northern part of that district, they, they carefully drew out areas that they didn't that they thought might be Democratic leaning areas. And so you end up in a situation where you have a, a you know kind of purpose designed Republican district, literally one, you know, of the former <coughs> majority leader of the state Senate. And the Democrat gets forty four percent of the vote. Right. And by the way, that's like that's like a Republican getting forty four percent in Dane County. John Jackler's a good candidate. I mean, it's not like he's the craziest of the crazy. He's actually a pretty nice guy who was on the ra- he was the morning guy in WTMJ. So there's no lack of name awareness for him. And he's not and he held the assembly. Yeah, and he's not he's not he's not a particularly he votes the wrong way, but he's not a particularly he's not Dewey Strobel. 
Uh, he so, votes the wrong way, but he doesn't make a big deal. Of no, he's actually uh, a very affable person, but he's not Dewey Strobel. I, I always use Dewey as the example. There's a good example. Yeah. Um, and, and so here you end up in a situation, and that's why I, I separate and when we look at the whole map, why I think that's, that's the one that you really take note of. And I think you take note of it for two reasons. Number one, as I said, um, you seems like there's a lot of Democratic motivation up there. Um, number two, you're really seeing something that we saw to the west of Madison and even to the west of Dane County uh, since the uprising in 2011, where uh, more rural areas are becoming more Democratic and small towns, small cities. And you're definitely seeing a lot of that, you know, out in western Dane County going down, you know, into Iowa County and places like that. Now I think we're starting to see more and more of it in the eastern part of Dane County and even across the line into some of the neighboring counties. Look at the fact that, as you noted on election night, Mary Arnold, who's quite progressive, was elected mayor of Columbus. And that's, that's within that uh, Jagler. Yeah, that used to be a system. solidly Republican city. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so what we're starting by, to By the way, let's, let's do a salute to Mary Arnold. What a terrific person. One of the best people around. And you know what? Fascinating thing. Uh, when I, you know, I always drive around the state, especially before a presidential election, go out to the small towns because I want to get a feel for where things are going in some of the more rural areas and small cities, small towns. And when I went up to Columbus right before the 2020 presidential election, uh, pulled into uh, downtown Columbus, they had a full Democratic headquarters on one of the main streets there, walked in, who's running the office? Mary Arnold, right? And she's, you know, a, being incredibly humane and decent and kind and running all these volunteers and making the full court press there. So here's an important thing to understand. Although the election for mayor of Columbus is a nonpartisan election, and it is one that, you know, you really are looking for somebody who can run a small city and do a good job, uh, nobody in Columbus didn't know Mary Arnold was a Democrat, and frankly, a very progressive Democrat. And so... Yeah, it's Again, like it's it's like the race in Sheboygan. No one knew. No, everyone knew Sorensen was a Democrat. That's right. Yeah. And, and so, he won with sixty percent of the vote. Yeah, and Mary against a, an incumbent. That's right. Yeah. And Mary won pretty solidly. And then here's a couple others. And I know this is getting into the geekery of elections. Well, that's, that's us. Presumably, that's what we do. Um, take a look at uh, down in Kenosha. In Kenosha, in recent cycles. Uh, there was even not that long ago a point where some of the uh, you know Coke backed uh, Coke brothers backed groups went into Kenosha to try and shift the school board down there. Kenosha oh, yeah. County has been a real battleground. Well, on Tuesday night, Mary Motor, uh, formerly Mary Brown, uh, who I've known since we were in high school together, um, uh, former head of the teachers union in Kenosha, ran first for school board. Big big victory for her. And uh, teachers down there had very good results. In up in Racine, uh, school board races very very good results for uh, candidates backed by um, Racine Teachers Union. And so what you're seeing is uh, again in places where just a few years ago you saw the Tea Party very strong, and you saw a lot of the conservative messaging, especially as regards education. Uh, Making seeming to you know take some ground to have some political strength, just getting wiped out. Getting let me let me put a little icing on the cake, and then we'll take a break. Uh-huh. The the right wing police chief in Sheboygan ran for school board, 
And I think among six candidates, he came in last place. And this is that's the police chief. I know that's pretty notable, and we are really seeing that all over the state. If you step back and take a breath and say, "Okay, Underly wins overwhelmingly for uh, superintendent of public instruction," you've got all these school board wins in small towns, small cities, bigger cities across the state. In the state where we have had now the better part of a thirty-year battle over education and over vouchers and over all these questions of private moving money from the public sector to the private sector. We just saw a great big win pretty much across the board for support for public education, for teachers, and well, for their unions. And uh, I'll leave it with this. Betsy DeVos put a lot of money in Deborah Kerr's campaign and lost. We'll take a break. John Nichols from the Capital Times and The Nation with us at SliceOffice.com. Similar to a well-tuned automobile, a guitar requires the same level of attention to perform at its very best. No matter how expensive your guitar may be, we will treat you and your instrument with the utmost respect. Call 920-723-1733 or visit jeffsguitar.com. Jeff's Guitar Clinic in Ford Atkinson, we love guitars. The attorneys at Jingris, Thompson & Walks have had the honor of receiving numerous awards for their work both in and outside the courtroom. But just as important as receiving accolades for being skilled attorneys, it's equally important to give back to the community in which they live and work. If you want a personal attorney that can help you in so many different areas, they've got them. They're in Eau Claire, Madison, Milwaukee, and Waukesha. They're easy to reach. GTWlawyers.com. That's GTWlawyers.com. We're back at SliceOffice.com, brought to you by our friends at Madison Computer Works. Also, Jeff's Guitar Clinic. John Nichols from the Capital Times with us. Uh, John, the uh, excellent Ari Melber program uh, noticed something and did a little piece on Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. And, you know, progressivism among Democrats. And here, here's a little montage. CEOs make millions and millions of dollars, but don't ask us to pay more in taxes. When a multinational corporation that builds a factory abroad brings it home and sells it, they pay nothing at all. If elected president of the United States, we're going to do everything that we can to rebuild the trade union movement in this country. I'm a union guy. I support unions. Unions built the middle class. It's about time they start to get a piece of the action. So, um, I, I'm sure Michael Bloomberg would not like that clip and montage, uh, nor would, uh, you know, Al Fromm probably wouldn't like that montage, John. I can think or of a, a name out of the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Dave McCurdy, I don't think would like that montage. <laughs> I'm bringing yeah. out all the DLC people. Well, let's go all the way up the ladder. A Bill Clinton? Bill, Bill Clinton <laughs> would like that montage. You know, that's, that's, a, that's really moving... The Democratic Party out of that so-called new Democrat Clintonist uh, kind of perspective that you saw so much of back in the 1990s, and really that was an overlay on the party for many years after. I think a great burden on the party. I mean, do you think Bill Clinton would have cut a, a an ad or cut a video supporting union organizing in a high tech or in a, in a tech related industry? Mm, I, don't think so. I don't think so. No. And, and so what we end up with is, is a situation where there's been a big change. I wrote a piece about this uh, last week for The Nation uh, on just 
the extent to which I believe Bernie Sanders' 2016 and 2020 campaigns altered or helped to alter the Democratic Party's attitude toward labor. Because Sanders started out as a very, you know, pro-labor candidate, and that happens, you know, you see that. But when he rose in stature, he didn't back off an inch from his pro-labor stances. He would join picket lines, he would support strikes, he would support organizing drives. He was very passionate about going into the South, not just recently on the Amazon organizing, but at auto plants and other facilities. And so you see with Bernie Sanders this deep, unyielding commitment and, and to support organizing, collective bargaining, the whole bit. Um, in the past, when a candidate rose to stature, they often would, you know, kind of soften that a little bit, you know, move, you know, to go toward the general election, kind of, you know, step away from what was seen as a more militant stance. Sanders, he never did. And I think that was a lesson for Democrats in general. Unions are rising in popularity. There's a lot more, you know, the poll numbers are, are better than ever. Uh, unions are also going into new areas, doing a lot of organizing. It's still incredibly hard. Nobody denies that. And there are still a lot of barriers. But the fact is, I think Democrats, right up to the presidency, have realized you can not only be pro-union because it's the right thing to do, you can be pro-union, and it's politically smart. And so I think something has shifted here, and it's a big deal. There are a lot of Senate Democrats, a lot of House Democrats who spoke up for the Amazon organizing, spoken up for other organizing. There's a a lot going on at the congressional level. In fact, um, Mark Pocan, the congressman from uh, 2nd District in Wisconsin here, uh, Mark Pocan's labor caucus that he has uh, helped to organize with several others, I think they've got over 100 members already signed up, and this is one of the newest caucuses in Congress, and it's growing like crazy. So I think something's happening there. There's something happening here, as they said, <laughs> for what it's worth. All right, so uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, probably one of the most craven, cynical people on earth, uh, said this. It's critically important for all conservatives, and indeed all Americans, to stand up and unite in defense of the freedom to organize around the causes we believe in. The bulwark of this freedom is, of course, the First Amendment. All right. That's what he said when he was fighting McCain-Feingold and going to court. Now here is uh, Mitch McConnell in 2021. I'm not talking about political contributions. That's fine. It's legal. It's appropriate. I support that. Uh, (laughs) So now he wants corporations to stop uh, giving political opinions. And this, of course, has to do with the... uh, all-star game being pulled out of the Atlanta area. It's not in the, well, the, Bra- the Braves aren't in Atlanta Delta. anymore. They're in Cobb County, but you get the point. And Coke and Delta standing up for voting rights, right? Yeah. So, you know, radical is voting rights. Um, so a couple things there that are interesting. First off, uh, you note in that first quote how strongly um, uh, McConnell was supporting the right to organize. Yes, organize. Yeah. He should have been down there, you know, with Bernie in uh, Bessemer. Mm, you know, uh, my my but, my friends in labor in Kentucky have don't have a pretty great opinion of Mitch McConnell's support for unions. So who yeah, was, or anywhere else? <laughs> <America>. <laughs> so anyway, so first off, there's that you know 
his the irony of the fact that he only supports a certain kind of organizing, organized money, right? And of course, you know the old slogan: the only thing that beats organized money is organized people. Well, McConnell's always just been on the first side of that equation. But here's where it gets really interesting. Um, I think he really kind of outed himself at the most fundamental level. Mitch McConnell is all for corporate speech where it involves corporations giving him money. Um, he's against it when it, it involves corporations actually taking you know any kind of stand. But he's not actually for speech, but he's for bribery. Mm. Well, that's true. It is. Uh, I, I believe when I believe when Russ Feingold was elected, reelected in 1998, he called it legalized bribery. Legalized bribery. Yeah, that's a big deal because mm. you know McConnell and Feingold were the two kind of opposite sides of this long, great struggle over campaign finance reform, and uh, you know they they tried to isolate Russ Feingold, who's a great defender of free speech, a great defender of the Constitution, and say, oh. You're trying to limit the speech rights of corporations. Well, corporations aren't people. They don't, you know, they don't have constitutional rights in the same way that people do. Um, but they, they created this fantasy. It underpins the Citizen United ruling and so many other rulings. Now we see the reality of it. They were never for corporate speech. They, they were, they, even, even if they think corporations are human beings, they don't think that they should have speech rights. They just think that corporations should have the right to bribe elected officials. Yeah. That's all that they believe in. Yeah, well, I'm sure they would have no trouble with corporations saying they want lower taxes. That that kind of speech would be okay. All right, I just have a couple minutes left here. The, of course, the, the nexus of all this has to do with uh, voting rights. Republicans have become quite brazen in their openness about suppressing voting rights. Just listen to some of these clips. Think about all these woke college university students now who will automatically be registered to vote. Whether they wanted to or not, you got an uninformed citizen who may not be prepared and ready to vote. Automatically, it's forced on them. Hey, go make a choice, uh, and our country's going to pay for those choices. All right, and then there's this. Uh, this is the governor of South Carolina. This bill, H.R. 1, threatens the constitutional sovereignty of the state of South Carolina. Now, those are not just words. That's very important. This, this country, our state, is built on the sovereignty of the states. This bill takes that away. You think Governor McMaster daydreams about the good old days of Fort Sumter? Well, I know you know, whenever you got somebody saying the word important and it sounds like it has a W in it, <laughs> um, you know, right off the bat, and I, I know this is my bias, and I admit it up front, and I, I apologize for it, but I, for my, my biases here. But I, I seem to hear these echoes um, from, you know, say around 1958 or 1962, yeah. and Southern governors talking about the sovereignty of their state and how uh, federal legislation and federal judges were threatening the sovereignty of their state. And, and you know what they were so concerned about then was letting uh, little kids come to public schools, letting everybody, everybody get a public education, or letting people drink out of the same water fountain. I mean, that, and we, as a society, we kind of got a little bit of clarity on that. We thought, well, that, that's bad. That's wrong. When we became clear with that, that, uh, that was instructive. Um, 
Well, now we got them back again, talking about sovereignty, talking about their right to run things the way they like to run things. And here's the real problem with this book. This notion of running things the way they want to run things, that affects them in ways that are bad, in ways that are wrong. It also affects the whole country because they're talking about how they're going to run federal elections, right? Presidential elections, House and Senate elections. And the, the impact of that with gerrymandering, with limits on voting rights, with all of the structural things they do, uh, to move the political process in favor of Republicans, uh, and in fact in favor of very right-wing Republicans, has an impact on Congress. It has an impact on presidential races. And why are they so concerned about their sovereignty? Why are they so concerned about having a different set of rules in which they hold elections than the rest of the country? They want their own, their own way to do it. Why? Very, very simple. It's the same concern they had in the late 1950s and early 1960s, and that is that if you expand the franchise, if you expand freedom, the majority of people in their own states might actually start to change things, as you're seeing happen in Georgia. Sean Nichols from the Capital Times and The Nation. Thanks for coming to Sly's Office. Sly'sOffice.com Thanks a million. Bye-bye.